Hello, everyone. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We're very pleased to have you join us today for, um, for the event Conspiracy Theories and COVID-19 Disinformation. Um, the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies is very happy to have the support of the Canadian government, particularly uh, Heritage Canada, their Digital Citizens Initiative, to support the Canadian Coalition Against COVID Disinformation. Um, through this project, we are bringing together top experts, scholars, practitioners, tech experts to help Canadians understand what's happening in cyberspace, what are the digital disinformation um, elements around COVID and how this impacts our democracy and that we have to build uh, digital resilience among Canadians so that we don't fall for this uh, or fall for some of the campaigns or conspiracy theories online. So we're very pleased today to have a group of experts. I'm now going to pass the floor to Aphrodite Salas. Uh, Aphrodite is a professor of journalism at Concordia University. She's a former journalist, and she's also a board member of the Canadian International Council. So Aphrodite, the floor is yours. Thank you, Kyle, and welcome to everyone. Uh, the way we're going to organize this event is as follows. Each of our three speakers will have uh, time to make a short presentation, at which point we will shift to a conversation and then we will take questions from the audience, which you will be able to type into the chat box. All right, so I'll start by introducing the three experts we have with us today. Dr. Joan Donovan is director and lead researcher of the Technology and Social Change Research Project at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Melanie Smith is the head of anal analysis at Graphica, which analyzes social media landscapes and conversations to discover how communities form online and how influence and information flow within large scale networks uh, with a focus on disinformation detection and risks to electoral integrity. And we also have Dr. Heidi Torek, who is an associate professor of international history and public policy at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. She works on media, international organizations, and transatlantic relations. To begin, I would like to pass the microphone to Dr. Donovan. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Also a Concordia alum, if you didn't know, um, and uh, our research has been really focused on generating case studies about uh, media manipulation, disinformation tactics, uh, but more recently with a focus on looking at medical misinformation and the vaccine rollout. Thank you. Wonderful. So at this point, I'll ask you, uh, Joan, to you've got a few minutes to expand on the topic uh, before I then uh, hand over to Melanie for the presentation. Okay. Um, and so one of the main things that we've been looking at um, that might be additional to this conversation is the role that different kinds of normal things that are going to happen during uh, the, a moment in time when society doesn't know what they don't know, right? So a pandemic happens, lots of people are rushing around looking for information, and that is the major vulnerability in which we see misinformation, particularly medical misinformation, take hold. So in the past, we used to describe this as... Um, quackery, snake oil, right? So there's a fair amount of grift. There's a fair amount of uh, supplements. Um, and one of the things that I tried to do early on with our research was look at what are people looking for in terms of treatments related to COVID-19 and how is that then surfacing in um, responses by uh, trusted or individuals as well as political leaders. And so I wrote a piece for Nature about the very early, um, uh, uh, the very early campaigns to try to make it seem as if hydroxychloroquine was much more effective than it was. Uh, science moves really slow. One of my uh, uh, persistent 
aches, I think, as a researcher is how slow it is to make knowledge and actually how expensive it is to make knowledge. And so it it was it's alluring as a politician to be able to say, oh, well, the cure has actually been here the whole time and we've we have years of use of this drug. And so it's safe to roll out in mass quantities. And so hydroxychloroquine actually solved the political problem of uh quelling panic in society but at the same time it opened an enormous scientific problem which is to say that the science was still not well formed uh but what we had um were a couple of folks who became uh almost um evangelists of hydroxychloroquine and made sure that different media outlets started covering any uh, anecdotal evidence of hydroxychloroquine as if it was the next greatest scientific discovery. And in the course of doing that research um, on, you know, what would be considered miracle cures at that point, uh, of course, the U.S. President Trump uh, was giving a press conference and said very clearly that he believes, uh, almost as if he has an intuition, rather than uh, fact that uh, HCQ and hydroxy or hydroxychloroquine is going to be this this miracle drug. And through the course of our research on not just this, but other um, potential cures, one thing became really apparent and and actually pretty scary, which is to say that if people hear about these kinds of cures, they're going to rush to try them. And that kind of behavioral shift is not something we necessarily see with other forms of disinformation. In particular, when we look at other forms of disinformation, like political disinformation, it's actually really hard to, to produce a relationship in any causal way between, you know, seeing disinformation online and then switching your vote or doing some other kind of political behavior. Maybe we can draw inferences from uh, if people show up to a political rally and having seen disinformation. Um, but in the case of health behaviors, people um, see, at least in the United States, access to medicine as a scarcity and as a result will rush in if they think that they can get to the front of the line which is actually presenting uh, interesting as a, as we worry about what kind of disinformation or misinformation is going to affect vaccine rollout. Uh, we do have a very skeptical public in the United States uh, related to the vaccine, and there's been a lot of polling, and it seems that a lot of Americans uh, or uh, a lot of people in the U.S. are I don't want to say Americans because Canada might count as American. Um, but, you know, I, I want to say that in the U.S., um, the rollout is going to be particularly fraught uh, with discussion. But if people actually do get access to the vaccine, uh, what we expect is it becomes less of a, uh, well, maybe I'll take the vaccine when you're confronted with, do you want it or not? Nah? Like people most likely, uh, will, uh, choose to get it, uh, based on the ways in which we've seen different vaccine rollouts happen. Of course, there are other additional complications. Like we've seen the BBC today reporting on, um, what looked like a side effect of the Pfizer vaccine, which actually was, uh, um, not true. It was, it was, uh, you, it was a picture being used by anti-vaccine activists to say, you know, if you take this vaccine, literally your feet are going to rot away. And that was not true. Um, but it's important, I think, to notice that there's a couple of different features that I'd love to get into in the discussion about when confronted with the actual choice, do we expect people to go get the vaccine? regardless of um, everything that they've heard. And then the second confounding factor is they're actually trying to vaccinate uh, first responders and then uh, older people with comorbidities. And so the typical uh, movement-based activism around uh, not making vaccines mandatory, the discourse tends to center on children. 
But because children uh, look as if they might be last in line for this kind of vaccine, we also uh, have a different uh, population that we need to message to. And so I'll leave it at that and uh, excited to see what the, uh, my co-panelists have to say. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joan. Really enlightening and can't wait to get into uh, some of those points in the discussion. Next, I'll hand over to Melanie. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Melanie Smith. I am the head of analysis at Graphica. Um, we've been studying the rise of conspiracy movements like QAnon in this context for a few years now. And in light of the pandemic, we've been looking at the impact of the theories that are really central to those movements on the spread of COVID-19 disinformation. So this is kind of health disinformation and political disinformation taking root at the same time and thinking about the impacts of those types of theories on a networked approach to how that information is spread. So a couple of things just um, kind of on our research from 2018 until now, the QAnon movement, I think we all know kind of what it is by now, but I always feel like it's helpful to um, give a quick one-liner on that. So the QAnon movement supports a nebulous set of conspiracy theories that emerged in late 2017 and kind of began with this user on the messaging board 4chan who was posting uh, under the name Q. This has morphed into something quite different from how it began and operates on platforms that it didn't initially um, but essentially revolves around the idea that there is a group of elites that are embedded in influential positions in places like government and media and the arts and also finance. So in terms of what Graphic has been seeing with regard to kind of both the way that the network itself is structured, the way that the QAnon community is structured, and how conversations are kind of taking place over the last few years, there's just a couple of things that I wanted to note, and hopefully we can get into these in the discussion too. The first thing is just that QAnon is extremely wide ranging and adaptable. And I think that is really where it ties into this conversation about COVID-19 disinformation. And I think one of the major successes as a movement is this ability to shape shift and adapt to different events in the news cycle, the pandemic being one of them, but the US political landscape being another. Um, and it's able to do this really because the belief structure is very straightforward. There's a good and there's an evil. And in the US context, there's a hero in President Trump. And there are many kind of villainous people and institutions working against them. So each development politically, particularly in the context of the US, is kind of easy to slot into this overarching worldview. And I think that also from our research kind of ties in with how the network functions online. And the main finding really is that it's just become more autonomous over time. So what started out as a relatively tight knit community online, relatively insular, not necessarily looking to kind of spread the message far and wide, um, what we're looking at now is a very different depiction of that. So we've really seen a community become more independent and less reliant on mainstream right-wing influences at the time in 2018. That was kind of the major way that they were spreading the message. They've become less reliant on those accounts over time and have kind of built up their own sense of who is an influencer and who's really centralizing the ideas in that community. Um, that mainstreaming, I think, has been most successful because of a kind of softening of rhetoric with QAnon. We don't often see, particularly in the context of COVID-19 disinformation, uh, we don't see that more hardcore conspiracy-minded theories taking place in mainstream conversation on mainstream platforms. So there's less focus on kind of the traditional QAnon theories, which were about Hollywood and um, the trafficking of children by this group of elites and we see more focus on um, undermining trust in the media and under undermining trust in public health institutions and kind of public health awareness campaigns particularly around COVID. Uh, one other thing just from our research from 2018 until now um, this is not just happening in the US I know I've mentioned that um, the US context a few times already but this really is a community and an influence that's expanding beyond the US 
There were active international QAnon clusters showing up in our network maps in places like Brazil and Japan before the pandemic, but we've really seen a rapid growth of QAnon support in European countries since the spring and further afield. The internationalization of that community is something that really concerns me as a researcher because I think it represents the spread of what is essentially an anti-government conspiracy in a time in which uh, communication from government is really important and we're kind of seeing it align with health misinformation communities and health skeptics in different places. So you kind of have this bringing together of like I said, health and political disinformation, that can be really unhelpful at a time where there's institutions that need to communicate with the public in a very straightforward way. Um, just a couple of comments on the uh, anti-vax side of things. That's uh, research that we're, we have been doing for a little while is studying the conversation around the potential rollout of the vaccine uh, globally and kind of focusing in on a few different countries. I think the interesting part of thinking about how QAnon fits into COVID-19 disinformation is that piece about adaptability. And the conversation itself has shifted so much from, um, you know, the government's lying to you, the media's lying to you, and with a very specific focus on the restrictions that government have placed on populations to control the spread of the pandemic. So we've seen in the summer, obviously, a lot of conversation about masks, the efficacy of wearing a mask, the efficacy of staying home and of kind of mass lockdowns at large. Um, this is something that varies quite a lot between countries and between platforms. So it's, it's difficult to really get a sense of what the global conversation is. Um, so for example, in the UK, I'm sure um, having seen the news today, it's a bit of a tricky thing to talk about with the Pfizer vaccine being rolled out this week. Uh, when it was announced last week, there was a massive uh, spread in conversation around thalidomide, which is a drug that was prescribed to pregnant women in the 50s and 60s um, with relatively detrimental effects on their children. And Google Trends showed a huge spike in searches for the word thalidomide just after the vaccine announcement went out. And that's really interesting as a researcher to kind of see which different narratives are playing out within health skeptic communities and particularly with COVID denialists with regard to drugs and treatments and potential vaccinations being rolled out. Um, I'll leave it there for now. Sorry, I've taken too much time. Thanks. Thank you. No, Melanie, that was great. And I think you made some uh, really fascinating points, uh, particularly about um, just how this vaccine rollout is going to happen. So that will definitely be something we'll pick up on in conversation. Uh, next, I'd like to hand the microphone over to uh, Heidi, to Dr. Torek for a few moments, please. Well, thanks so much, Aphrodite. And it's, it's actually perfect that I'm coming after uh, Joan and, and Melanie, who've both done such stellar work on disinformation and health uh, misinformation and health skepticism, what we might call poor quality information in a whole host of ways. Uh, so I've been working on the history of health communications for a few years. And uh, this was something that, of course, a, a subset of researchers had been working on already in the present, looking at things like anti-vaxxer communities, how they were spread, who was funding them, what was going on online, and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, we've seen that blossom, um, unfortunately, in all sorts of ways since COVID-19. Um, but what I've been doing over the last uh, eight to 10 months is, is trying to take a little bit of a different tack, which is to try and figure out uh, what makes for effective communications. Um, so I led a team that wrote a report looking at how nine democracies around the world uh, communicated around COVID-19 and what were effective principles that we could see that also aligned with democratic norms. Because one of the other problems that we see during COVID-19, which I would say historically is generally a problem during pandemics, is that more authoritarian leaning governments often use health emergencies as a way to accrue political power to themselves and to constrain rights. So there are genuine concerns, uh, for example, documented by Freedom House about how more authoritarian leaning countries have used states of emergency to constrain people's freedom of expression, uh, clamp down on human rights and so on and so forth. Um, so what I was really interested in doing is trying to figure out, okay, are there democratic ways of uh, communicating around COVID-19 that can be effective? So as I said, we looked at nine countries around the world on five continents, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, New Zealand, Senegal, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, 
and Canada. And then within Canada, we looked at British Columbia and Ontario to try to draw out what were some principles of really effective communications around COVID-19. Um, so the good news is that, that we found a lot of them. You know, obviously in, in this terrible pandemic, we, we've often focused on places that have had real trouble communicating where things have been politicized and high level political figures have, for example, uh, jumped on things like hydroxychloroquine as, as miracle cures and so on. But we can also see in some of the examples that we looked at many, many effective modes of communication. Um, so I'll just lay out a couple and then we can we can delve into some more later. But but one of the keys that, that we saw was um, figuring out a good division of labor between what public health officials say and what politicians say. So in the case of South Korea, for example, public health officials tell you the guidelines but politicians tell you the meaning behind it. Um, and they think very carefully about what the metaphors are that they're using. So in South Korea, for example, um, President Moon describes COVID as a relay race where South Koreans are running this together and everybody should be getting over the finish line. Um, something that we think is much more effective, for example, than the kind of military metaphors, the sort of authoritarian top down um, can land you in all sorts of uh, issues when you start to enforce fines often on marginalized communities. And the other thing that we saw was very successful was the way in which many governments very quickly um, tried to pull in civil society. So in the case of Senegal, for example, very early on, uh, they brought in imams and Christian leaders to make sure that those people who were very trusted in the community were shown washing their hands and complying with guidelines. So basically what we did in this report is we developed a, a set of principles looking at those nine case studies um, that could be followed by any democracy, all sorts of ways that could really help to ensure that the government communication is also effective because we, we really have to think about that side of the coin as well. What does it mean to communicate effectively in the 21st century, even with all of the problems of platforms? Uh, one way to think about this, I think, is a type of positive flood the zone. So we saw this in places like Taiwan, South Korea, or New Zealand, where various types of ministries were very effectively trying to use digital tools, everything from uh, Facebook Live in New Zealand to um, building online digital maps in Taiwan to show where mask supplies were available. So using these tools to get information from people so that when they are anxious and looking for information, what they find is information that is reliable, that they can look to, which can help to forestall rumors. So this, I think, is, is something that, that I worry about in many um, places where we have seen insufficiently innovative uh, communication. Uh, we haven't seen it think about some of the basic principles that were in the US's CDC manuals on communication about empathy and rapport building and avoiding stigmatization of various communities. So the, the major sort of point of this report was we can see that there are a, a set of countries that have done a pretty good job in communicating effectively. There have been uh, fewer rumors, uh, fewer problems along the lines of what uh, Joan and Melanie describe in those countries. So alongside thinking about this problem of combating disinformation, we also need to think about what it means to have effective health communications in the 21st century. And that, of course, continues to be a massive issue as, as we get into the, the winter, this type of wave, and we think about vaccine rollout. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your comments. Uh, this is great. Okay, so for the next uh, few minutes, I'll be asking questions of the three panelists. But at this point, I also want to invite our audience members to, if you have a question that's popped into your head, just type it into the, um, to the comments bar for our next segment, which I will then read uh, the questions out for our panelists. Uh, but just to start off this part of the conversation, um, the last point you made, uh, in, well, just in terms of the positive communications or the good communications, Heidi, uh, can you give a sense of in all of the different countries that you studied of, of effective communication, was there one particular example of something that was done that you think would work particularly well now that we're looking at vaccine rollout? Like, is there something that some someone did in one of those countries that you think would be applied very well to this next phase of uh, dealing with uh, the crisis? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that we found was that each of these countries did little things slightly differently because they really focused on the context of that particular country. But, but one example that I really liked was trying to think about this much more as a two-way street. So uh, what we found in countries that were effective was this wasn't just 
governments pumping out information, but rather they were really trying to pull in civil society and have two-way conversations. So, for example, um, in face in New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ardern spent quite a lot of time doing Facebook Lives called Conversations uh, Through COVID. And she would invite on guests from all sorts of different realms of New Zealand society, everything from female indigenous scholars to children's musicians to talk with them about how they were experiencing COVID. So this is the sort of very beginning when there was a very strong lockdown in New Zealand. But the, this kind of conversational element, I think, was incredibly helpful. And I think we see too little of that. It's a great way of, of trying to alleviate different people's fears speak to different groups of people. So I'd love to see some of that um, happening where you even just talk with different groups of people about perhaps even their vaccine hesitancy and trying to think that through. So not necessarily <laughs> anti-vaxxers, but, but trying to speak to people about their legitimate concerns. Uh, so you could imagine, you know, Bonnie Henry having a conversation with someone along those lines, um, that kind of thing. I think more of that two-way communication would be incredibly helpful. And we've seen that used to great effect in, for example, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly, that's also something that uh, that Joan spoke about early on. Uh, Joan, you, you said that you expected the vaccine rollout to be fraught with uh, discussion of all type. And you also brought up that question when confronted with the choice, do we expect people to get the vaccine? Um, Joan, can you just comment a bit on the kinds of discussions you expect to be happening um, going forward now? I mean, Heidi mentioned uh, what's worked particularly well, but what do you see coming in the next phase? Well, I mean, in the UX context, uh, everything has been politicized. Uh, and even simple interventions like mask wearing is seen as a defiant political act uh, if you refuse to wear masks. And so um, one of the things that we have to reckon with is, at least in the US, is that we are going to have a deficit of doses for quite some time. And so it's not actually going to be the case that we're not going to be able to find bodies to put, you know, vaccine like vaccines in. Uh, it's actually going to be probably a very large conversation about access and prioritization that are where if, if I was doing public messaging or a politician seeking um, audiences to be receptive to this that for quite a while, I think it's, it's going to be a really big question about who gets the vaccine first and worrying less about, um, you know, folks that are going to refuse on some kind of political principle, which raises the other question about the flow of timely, local, relevant, and accurate information online which is to say that we have built a media ecosystem with social media that is um, really tilted in favor of people who can use both the speed and the scale to, uh, to get their messages out there. And then many of us researchers or public health officials, everything is then done in reaction to that. And so I think another strategy that uh, goes beyond messaging actually has to do with the design of the infrastructure itself, which is to say that when people are looking for information, uh, which is when they are most vulnerable for to, to encounter misinformation because they know what they don't know <laughs> and they're looking for an answer, um, we have to be really careful then about what search returns are coming back uh, especially uh, getting on social media companies to uh, pay very close attention to the kinds of trends that Melanie was, was highlighting and then using human reviewers to make sure that whatever ends up trending, whatever ends up coming back to people uh, is what it says it is and is uh, in this case, when it comes to vaccines, accurate information. Uh, we don't really have systems in place right now for increasing the flow of timely, local, relevant, and accurate information. Uh, so that's where I've been investing most of my time as a researcher is in thinking about, well, what might those strategies look like? How do we get at content curation mm -hmm. rather than reactive content moderation? 
brilliant point. And also you mentioned, uh, I'd like to pick up on the last point you made about trends and what Melanie was talking about, uh, particularly in terms of uh, the internationalization. Uh, and Melanie, my question to you would be, is there, do you feel that there is a relationship between conspiracy theories that we see elsewhere around the globe uh, versus North America, for example, this internationalization aspect? Yeah, I do. I think what we've seen with the spread of COVID-19 disinformation is really an aligning of uh, views in places where there are strong conspiracy movements and there are strong anti-government movements. That is to say, healthy, sceptical, uh, dissident movements um, that question the ideas of their government. The problem that um, seems to be the case in the aligning of QAnon with those things is that QAnon is very easy to apply to every government context. In the, in the way that I was kind of explaining earlier with the belief structure being so straightforward that there is a good and there's an evil, that there is uh, a deep state really working against you. COVID-19 as a situation falls quite neatly into that type of conspiracy theory. So what I think we've seen is particularly in places like Brazil and Japan, where there are a lot of healthy, skeptical anti-government movements, and there's also a lot of conspiracy movements. We saw QAnon really taking off in those places first, pre-pandemic. Um, the countries in Europe that have very strong um, COVID protest movements and movements that are kind of protesting the restrictions, how, however specific they may be, for example, Germany and in France, in the UK, they seem to be picking up on this political disinformation piece and the political conspiracy kind of later on. So it may be through COVID-19 that somebody would first encounter QAnon content, for example, rather than the other way around. So I do think the situation in North America is quite different. We did see a very consolidated conspiracy community, a very wide ranging conspiracy community. So for example, in the US, there are very big movements around things like 9-11 truthing. Um, there are very big kind of conspiracy theories about certain individuals that played, unfortunately, very neatly into the kind of community building that the QAnon movement really was looking for. One question as well, actually, for all three of you, um, in advance of taking questions from the audience. I've, what I've noticed a lot on social media lately is just a lot of people saying, how do I deal when uh, my family or my friends are spreading misinformation without realizing it or believing in these conspiracy theories? Um, what can people do when confronted with this? Uh, it's a fine line and there's been a lot of discussion online. Um, what I've been noticing is just people not sure how to handle um, the, the kind of misinformation, disinformation flow within their own social circles. I mean, one of the things that I've recommended to folks is just to, to listen and try to hear what the pain point is rather than what the the theory is. Uh, I don't recommend trying to refute uh, conspiracy point by point. I mean, here with QAnon, you have a group of people who think potentially that, uh, it, you know, JFK is going to run for president in 2024. I mean, there's just some there's just some strange theories out there that uh, these these folks adhere to that are not um, based at all in any kind of uh, realistic scenario. One of the things that's been interesting to contemplate, though, is how do you approach people with dignity uh, when they're potentially also looking for debate? It could be that you're getting trolled. Be cognizant of the fact that sometimes the point is just to upset you and so you have to really think about what the engagement is going to be what your level of concern is and then um you know how you're going to approach it isn't necessarily uh if you approach someone with dignity and respect uh, and say to them you know with a more compassionate uh frame that you know well what's the harm then in wearing a mask if you know x y and z is happening you know um, 
but it is it's a really difficult thing it's it's very contextual in the sense that it really matters what that person is struggling with and what the the ways in which they're being reached out to by these different groups one of the things that i think our our data analysis really hides about conspiracy networks is actually that they're communities that these people are being drawn in they're being talked to it's very receptive to open questions and uh but then when that becomes all you see and all you're interested in then that's when it starts to present a problem and so uh, as you're approaching someone you really want to understand a little bit about well where else are they getting community and how else might they be getting information and and then approach it from from that viewpoint uh, on actually, I see quite a number of audience comments and questions related to this topic. So I'll start weaving in some of them. Uh, Najola Chorus uh, and another one from asks a question that someone else in the audience is also asking: Is there any pressure on social media platforms to actually remove disinformation rather than just tag it? Melanie or Heidi or Joe? Yeah. I think the um, the answer to that question is yes, there is pressure. There are a few different ways in which that's happening and it vastly depends on which platform we're talking about. Um, a lot of the election disinformation that we saw and the kind of approach to that seems to be very different from how platforms are coping with health misinformation. And I think that's a really good thing. We're dealing with, um, as Heidi was saying, communities that these are legitimate concerns for a lot of this comes from being scared and a lot of this comes from being angry and i think the empathetic approach um to kind of understanding where this information is coming from and what the source for it is is really important for platforms um in the context of kind of covid conspiracy and uh, various different theories that have been borne out in the last few months I think the real question is whether this is a platform engineering problem or whether content actually needs to be removed from the platform completely. And I think platforms, again, have taken very different approaches to that. So what's allowed on Facebook is different from what's allowed on YouTube and for various different reasons about the way that the platforms function and form communities. Um, one of the kind of questions that I think all of us researchers typically ask is, um, how the kind of journey fits together for an individual who's encountering this type of content. And typically we see in COVID conspiracy communities that there tends to be a conversation that's happening on alternative platforms where there is kind of a hardening of belief and a doubling down on various different pieces of theory. And then a, a move to mainstream social media, so platforms like Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, TikTok, um, those platforms are typically being used to kind of popularize these ideas and popularize that content. And that is where new users are coming across it. So these aren't necessarily um, communities that are being brought into the fold on platforms like Gab and Parler. They really are uh, Facebook communities for people that are interested in very specific things. Um, alternative health, wellness, yoga even, we see those communities being kind of confronted with COVID conspiracy theories in the spaces in which they were already forming a community and kind of being active online. And I think that kind of gets to this question of whether this is a platform engineering problem. So should these platforms be showing COVID conspiracy content in um, recommended content to users that wouldn't have ordinarily come across it? Or is this a situation where we really have to nip the content in the bud and prevent it from being uploaded? And that requires um, a very tricky thing, which is all of the platforms coming to the table to kind of form a, a uniform understanding of what should and shouldn't be allowed um, and sharing information about what is being taken down on various different platforms. I know others will have thoughts on that, so I'll leave it there. Thank you. Did anybody uh, else, uh, Joan or Heidi, did you want to weigh in on that question? Maybe I'll just say something very briefly, which is I think that in some sense this was 
predictable. So we can we can go down the road where every new thing that happens, right? Election disinformation, COVID disinformation, whatever the next thing is, um, we can attack each one of those as individual content problems. Or we can, as I think Joan and Melanie were, were already hinting towards, think about this in a systemic fashion. What is it about the systems on platforms that mean that it is so simple when something like this happens, and sadly so predictable? Um, that some of these results will be what occurs. And so I think that's one thing that I hope we can uh, take away from this is uh, many people spent three, four years worrying about elections and kind of kept their eye on that prize as if political disinformation was the only type online, um, whereas in fact we see that there's some systemic issues going on here. So I think that that's one thing that I hope we can take away from this is to think about this much more systemically and recognize um, that it's not really about any one individual event, but rather about the, the systems that seem to create for a whole host of different reasons, uh, a whole world of uh, conspiracy theories, regardless of what the actual uh, event is. Mm -hmm. And I'll just add one thing there about um, the removal of certain kinds of disinformation. Facebook actually created a carve out, as did Twitter, for politicians, which in the US has actually led to a deluge of disinformation about the outcome of our last election um, just, you know, just a month ago. And that is a, a serious problem because here you have, you know, they're going to take down disinformation if it's related to any old individual that does it. Um, and so that is still happening. But certain people who have enormous resources, enormous networks, and our politicians then are not subject to the same rules. That's a decision that they made uh, in particular. And so we have to be really cognizant of the fact that um, political power is uh, really the engines of these policy decisions within these companies. And so I, I'm all for increasing the pressure on these platform companies to understand that they are the primary distribution system for this kind of disinformation and it begins on platforms and then it often trades up the chain to mainstream news and media. Mm -hmm. uh, just to continue on that, uh, the question from the audience uh, that's been posted a few minutes ago, much focus has been on following conspiracy theories on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. What do we know about closed messaging apps? like Telegram or Snapchat? Anybody want to take a stab at that question? I think the answer is we know much less purely because of data availability. We have a sense in which, um, in, we have a sense of how those platforms fit into, like I said earlier, one person's journey for kind of encountering content and where it goes from there. One of the easy ways to do that is by looking at outbound links from other platforms. So are there conversations that are taking place about, for example, COVID conspiracy in which one user says, actually, we should talk about this on Telegram, or actually there's this interesting user on this other platform that has something to say about this, or have you seen this video? So you can kind of get a sense of how different platforms are playing into different pieces of um, the conversation, obviously they're used for different things. So the, the open platforms, um, places like Twitter, largely used for kind of broadcasting conspiracy theories and building up an influencer base. Um, with platforms like Facebook, you obviously have the pages and group functions, which allows for a little bit of community building. Um, on the private messaging apps, you really have to know where to look. So a lot of platforms like that have kind of come from the gaming community, so like Steam and Discord, there are um, invitations that are sent out to these channels and you need to kind of know what you're looking for. So they tend not to be the first place in which people encounter this type of content, but more kind of a stop along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in our work, um, my co-researcher Brian Friedberg, we think about this problem a lot. Um, and Melanie is very correct in the sense that you kind of have to know what you're looking at. Um, and, and where to look. Uh, but I think about it like, um, not to get too metaphorical, but think about bees and hiving and swarming. Some small chat apps are much better useful for hiving and you can come up with your plans. You can be as bold and as boisterous and as racist as you want. And then it becomes about, well, how do you deploy or swarm 
onto another network. And so, for instance, in uh, as you know, years and years of research on the ways in which uh, activists and journalists become targeted uh, for harassment, usually you can trace it back to some of these uh, minor apps or uh, gaming platforms and then be able to say, oh, this is where people came up with the idea and got coordinated. And then they deployed their attack on another platform uh, against an individual. And part of our research over the years has been to watch those um, small but open spaces. They're generally, the problem is not OPSEC. Like these are not underground groups that are like, networked and know the ins and outs of hiding their trails right they're not they're not that sophisticated they often are out in the open but it does take a fair amount of resources to pay attention to and understand what's happening but once they start swarming and once they start picking in a, a person or a group to attack or or trying to get eyes on a certain piece of content then it's usually the larger platforms that they go to because that's where the viewers are that's where the audience is and so uh, there's a definite relationship between these things uh, but that's why we take an ecosystem-wide approach we talk about media ecosystems in our research and uh, because we do see that cross-platform uh, networking is is integral for some manipulation and disinformation campaigns and especially networked conspiracy, because these folks are always prepared for getting shut down and removed on another platform. So they have backup channels everywhere on every platform. Uh, there's actually two audience questions that relate very closely to our current conversation. So I'll take um, the, the first one that I'll bring up is uh, from Twitter. Uh, just bring, continuing on that point, do Western countries have enough people to fight this kind of disinformation or do we have to train and scale up our efforts to confront it? Um, does anybody uh, have a strong sense of that? Uh, maybe I can take that seeing as, uh, seeing as my study was looking at a whole host of countries around the world. So I think one, you know, one point that Joan made that I want to emphasize and I think our research showed as well is that if we are only reactive, as in we only fight disinformation, uh, you've already lost. Because uh, part of this is how do you create a different frame and a different point of reference and a different way of thinking so that when uh, a piece of disinformation or conspiracy theory comes along, you might be less likely to believe it in a certain way. So I think that that's one thing that, that we really found in our research. And there have been other studies, big data studies that show this as well, showing that um, the governments that got information out about COVID quicker saw fewer people uh, searching and buying uh, quack cures online. So we do actually have large scale data research that backs this up, that we need to be more proactive in this. Um, the second thing, though, that we did find in places like Taiwan or South Korea was impressive institutional capacity. And I want to emphasize that this is actually quite recent. So in both uh, Taiwan and South Korea, the reason they had considerable communications resources was because they learned from SARS in the case of Taiwan and a MERS outbreak in 2015 in South Korea. And they reformed their public health institutions in a whole host of different ways. Most relevant for our conversation was that they really understood that communications was a vital non-pharmaceutical intervention. So alongside whether people wear masks or physical distance, whether you test, trace, isolate, underlying all of that was having effective communications strategies. So they had real institutional capacity so that they could put things out online or they could build maps or they could you know, do the classic press conference, but then do a whole host of other things on top of that. Um, so maybe the final thing I do want to add, because I think it's important, is that this isn't about propaganda. This is about how you get out public health guidance that meets your population where it's at in ways that is comprehensible to them. And you just need institutional capacity and people to do that. And unfortunately, we've seen in a lot of countries in Europe, uh, North South America, that there simply aren't enough people. There's not enough institutional capacity to do this um, in empathetic and targeted ways. Mm -hmm. Melanie or Joan, thank you so much for that, Heidi. 
I'd actually like to bring up another question uh, somewhat related that Heidi, you may have some stats on from Colin Bathgate. Uh, Colin is wondering if there are any stats around the number of individuals or organized groups involved in spreading disinformation and their geographic spread. All three of you may have this, um, the answer to this question. Heidi? Oh, uh, stats are always hard because these things also exist on a bit of a spectrum, right? So we've got the, and, and maybe Melanie can speak more to this, the kind of QAnon world of people, but there's a whole spectrum, right? And and I would imagine almost every single one of us is part of this, right? We read something, we think, oh, that looks, you know, true to us. Should we share it? Um, things about, you know, you think about zinc, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's hard to say. It's not, it's not a light switch on off. Um, I believe disinformation, I don't. Rather, it's just, it's an ecosystem in which we all participate. So uh, Whitney Phillips, who's also a researcher of this, you know, thinks about this as pollution. Um, so if we think, you know, each one of us by consuming food every day, we use plastic, right? We contribute to climate change, uh, whether we're trying to reduce our plastic or not. So that's maybe one other way of trying to think about it. So certainly we, we can have stats on how many people are in, you know, a Facebook group on X, Y, and Z, and I think that's important. Um, but the other fact is that, that all of us in some way potentially are uh, participating in this and you have a, a sort of spectrum where uh, one person is perhaps, you know, doesn't believe that this, that COVID spreads through aerosols, uh, but actually they're happy to wear a mask and do a whole host of, of other stuff. So it's, it's, I think, not so clear that we can, as I said, it's more of a dial than a light switch, but, but I think Melanie or Joan might have more statistics on things like QAnon adherence in, in various countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just from my side, um, it's the same answer, really. It's really difficult to give a sense of conclusive numbers here. We tend to focus quite strongly on uh, volume of content that's being produced. Um, one of the reasons that it's difficult is the same that Heidi said. It's very hard to distinguish what would be kind of somebody that is intentionally spreading disinformation online from somebody that's interacting with this content and sharing it. Um, because they find it interesting or because, um, you know, someone that's stopping short of what we would call a disinformation spreader in an intentional sense. Um, the, the kind of number of individuals and organized groups piece kind of speaks to a slightly different issue, which is crossing over into information operations. So people that are intentionally running campaigns to mislead and knowingly mislead, um, which is a slightly different set of work. So I think um, it's both difficult to distinguish what might be something like a QAnon account from what would be a COVID skeptic or COVID denialist account. And that makes the job of kind of giving a sense of overall volume very difficult. But the one thing I will say is that these communities are um, growing more populous in terms of the amount of, of content that they produce. So they are much more loud than they used to be and seem to be reaching large, larger audiences. So we have this kind of um, situation, particularly within QAnon, where there are grassroots influencers who now have uh, followings on mainstream social media platforms ranging into the hundreds of thousands. So you have more people listening and more people sharing, but there aren't necessarily um, good stats to put on the number of people that are intentionally spreading this information. And yeah, one thing I'll add and tweak your question a bit, which is, do we have stats on the number of individuals or organized groups profiting from the spread of disinformation, right? That is something that we can answer empirically. Uh, and I've done some research on that related to hate groups uh, with um, when I was back at Data and Society, when we did uh, a report, a great report with, with Whitney Phillips on the oxygen of amplification, but then also another stellar report with Becca Lewis on the Alternative Influence Network looking at, you know, there's actually a very small group of people on YouTube that are hate mongers that are profiting from and, and are really trying to advance the causes of, of uh, white nationalism. And but when you start to pick apart and look at, well, what are the incentive structures in place for certain kinds of disinformation campaign operators, we tend to see a pattern. We tend to see the same people over and over and over again, trying it again. So we we have a model up on mediamanipulation.org about the, the life cycle of, of a media manipulation campaign. And one of the things that we thought was important to, to put in 
to the life cycle is uh, for thinking about, well, how do manipulators adapt to any kind of mitigation efforts? Because when we see uh, cross purposes where spreading misinformation is also somebody's job uh, or is their lifestyle and their brand as an influencer, we tend to see them at the center of some of the more uh, noxious campaigns. As well, the participants then are doing the job of sharing, not just as a just-in-case share like we saw early on with COVID where people were sharing that chain letter that said drink a little bit of water every 15 minutes and hold your, hold your breath for 10 seconds as a way to test if you have COVID. Of course, these were erroneous explanations, but they were traveling in a kind of chain letter format. But when we look at why people participate, and a lot of it is done uh, out of political causes and out of political participation and out of this idea that you're participating in something bigger than yourself by getting the word out. Um, and those kinds of sharing patterns, we need platform companies to actually investigate and then um, and, and then come up with uh, a solution, an actual design-based infrastructural solution to slow that kind of spread. But once we look at who's profiting, it, it becomes very clear what the patterns are around certain genres of disinformation. Thank you, Joan. Uh, I have another question uh, somewhat related in terms of uh, okay, from Robin Miller, with a few credentialed people touting bunk, for example, fringe doctors, how should a layperson determine whether someone is actually an expert? My goodness, I'll tell you, it is hard. Um, one of the things that clued me in very early on to the, the mythos of hydroxychloroquine was I started to look at who was pushing it. One of them was an eye doctor with a Twitter account, mostly about Bitcoin. And the other person was uh, really stretching the bounds of an affiliation at Stanford, um, which when I investigated the affiliation, it turns out that you could just apply to be an affiliate at this uh, it, with this certain um, designation and that they had something that, you know, hundreds of affiliates. And so it didn't actually mean anything. The other hard part of this that we're uh, looking into understanding is like, you know, someone can be credentialed, have a PhD, and that's not what their specialty is. And so it's a very hard thing to substantiate someone's credentials, especially in the case where um, they might be politically motivated to flout their credentials in order to achieve a specific kind of end. And we see this a lot in um doctors that are called in to attest uh, to uh, the idea that somehow the pandemic isn't isn't as bad as it seems or mm -hmm. that certain treatments are uh, capable of handling things at home. Um, you know, you're capable of handling COVID at home if you take X, Y, and Z regimens. And those are, those are a little bit harder uh, to vet, but I would always suggest going to the website of the organization they say that they're involved in, looking at their, if they are a university faculty member, they should have a CV available, looking at their past publications and saying, do they have expertise in this area? And I know that is like a rabbit hole to go down, um, but it's an important one if you are going to be sharing information with your friends and families. You know, responsibility in this case, unfortunately, um, falls on many of us, many individuals to be good stewards of information that we share through our own social media. Um, but yeah, it's hard for me some days when I'm just like, oh, that person's from, uh, you know, Harvard, they must be smart. And I'm just like, oh, no, that's that is not the logical conclusion here. The logical conclusion is, is go back and take a look and make sure that they they have a background in what they're what they profess to be talking about and and knowing more about than anybody else. 
If I could add just one thing very, very briefly, which is I think um, part of what we see here is, is what has been called the intelligence trap, right? Somebody who might be very qualified in one area, then thinking that they are therefore qualified to comment on everything else. Um, and we can think about many other arenas uh, in which that is true, where, for example, you know, smart business people suddenly think they know stuff about other things they've been successful in one arena. And that's where Joan's point about check what this person is really an expert in and understand that this is a phenomenon that has existed, you know, long before for the internet that, that people who are very intelligent and capable in one area get into the trap where they think they know about other things. Um, and that includes you know, the many different specialties of, of medicine. Um, and, and one I think of the big problems here has been um, other types of um, fringe doctors playing epidemiologist, which is about a public and not about individuals. So that's another point to keep in mind that often these kinds of people are touting individual cases when what COVID is, is a public health emergency, which relies on, you know, statistics and larger numbers where epidemiologists have specific um, understandings that other types of doctors don't. And I just actually would invite Heidi to, um, to respond as well, just before we wrap up, Heidi. Oh, I just did. So maybe Melanie. Oh, <laughs> Melanie, yes. I'm sorry. Those are the two British accents getting <laughs> confused. Um, I think you both answered that much better than I would have been able to. But uh, one thing that I just want to add, which I think um, is something that's borne out very clearly in the research, is that there are also... Um, there is a large role of influencers and people with followings that are completely outside of this community that are not necessarily claiming to be scientists. But um, we've seen particularly in the anti-vaccination context, a lot of celebrities being involved in those conversations. They are people naturally who have large audiences and um, are kind of strangely trusted figures in lots of communities. Um, we saw even Van Morrison, who was releasing songs promoting resistance to COVID restrictions and potential resistance to the vaccine. Um, so there's, there are other ways in which people are receiving that information from what appear to be trusted sources to them. Uh, in recent weeks on the anti-vax side, we've also seen former employees of the companies that are producing the vaccines come out and say, um, we don't think that, A, this is necessary because apparently the pandemic is over. That's one narrative that has come out from those individuals. And a second one, which is that um, the vaccines have been rushed and must have not been th put through very thorough testing, which uh, is something that we know obviously is not true. So there are... Um, as Joan said, it's very difficult because these people look to be legitimate, particularly if they're employed by companies that are now producing the vaccine. But I would always say, check the sources, check where those people are published, check who's listening to them and check what else they're sharing. So what other sources do they deem legitimate and are they the same that you would naturally think of? Thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you for that. And on behalf of MIGS, I would at this point like to thank our panelists, thank the organizers, Canadian Heritage for funding, uh, and of course, all of you for attending. I'd also like to highlight that the uh, second event in this series is taking place next week, and that is on the verification of facts and the role of the media. Ça va être en français, le 15 décembre à 10 heures le matin, uh, Eastern time. So, Again, thank you for joining us and see you next time.